Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, today's episode is with Jake Sarofman. Jake is a highly intelligent gentleman, very well read, uh, the president of MetaCX and the former chief marketing officer at Pendo. Jake impressed me the entire conversation with his use of the English language, uh, his sentence structure, and what's amazing is it wasn't fake. And Jake is a fountain of knowledge. It was a master class in marketing and customer service. So I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did. I had to take a nap afterwards and rest my brain. So dig in and get out your thesaurus because Jake is going to blow your mind. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Eating Crow. I have Jake Sarofman with me. And Jake is the president of MetaCX, but he's also much more. <laughs> Jake also has a cold, but we're going to work through that today. He's going to muscle through it. So, uh, Jake, you know, you're a... You're a serial entrepreneur. You're also a big fan of education. As we talked before we started recording, you would be in school constantly if you could. Totally. Why is that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, if I were to if I were to sum it up with one word, I guess it's just curiosity. Mm. I'm one of these people who uh, my my mind needs to be engaged. I I read voraciously. It's it's just um, it's how I think. It's how I process the world. It's how I filter things. And do you think that naturally aligns you to being an entrepreneur? What is it about those two tenets of your life that tie together? Well, it's interesting. I I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur, despite okay. having spent my career working for early stage venture startup venture mm-hmm. software companies and startups. Um, I think what it takes to be an entrepreneur is something that, that frankly, I don't know that I necessarily have. And it's this, the grit of being able to stare rejection in the face and say, saying, I know better. It's the ability to sort of stare down that uncertainty over and over again until it works. And I've worked with and for incredibly brilliant entrepreneurs my entire career, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's I love doing it, but I don't take the original risk. I don't. I'm just on the payroll. Sure. You know, even even if I'm employee number ten, I didn't start the company. You know, it's that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you in the program because we talked about this in our first call when we met a few months ago, and I was fascinated by how self aware you were about the people you've worked with in those roles, right? The, the person that founded the crazy mad scientist in the back of the room that's willing to grow the company and that was willing to handle that rejection over and over again. But as an, and by the way, I'm, I'm that person. So I've done that a couple of times now. Mm-hmm. And in the companies that were successful, there were people like you in it, right? That recognized it, that brought something of value to the table that that leader doesn't have. So when you think about, fitting the pieces of the puzzle together. What's in, in addition to the grit, what would be some other skill sets that you bring that maybe an entrepreneur doesn't have that are complementary? Yeah, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great question. The thing that I think I've brought to these, these organizations is the ability to connect the dots and find the narrative okay. in order to tell a story that sells. So finding the sort of resonant chords within a whole lot of complexity and incomplete thoughts that makes sense in the mind of the entrepreneur, but won't translate to the broader marketplace. Mm. So I'm, I'm pretty good at drawing those things out and making those connections and synthesizing a lot of different information and connecting it to patterns that I see in the market. <clears throat> and you know, back to the question about education and why I'm almost compulsive about it. You know, I'm not a genius. And my approach to innovation and creativity and intelligence is fairly pragmatic, it's just pattern matching. Mm. And the more knowledge you acquire, the more things you see, um, the richer your opportunity to make those connections. So it's essentially taking existing ideas that you discover in some 
uh, sort of unrelated domain and applying it in a new context is just an, is a is a way to hack your way into creativity. Well, and as a former CMO, that is the core. That's the essence of that role. Hundred percent. I can already tell, Jake. I'm going to have to up my verbal gymnastics game with you because you're so <laughs> you're so well read and highly educated that. <laughs> the use of the vocabulary and the language in the first five minutes of this podcast, I think some people might, they might turn it off because they're intimidated. It was brilliant. I, thank you. I, I will admit, and I don't know if I should share this on public record, but in my first professional role as an intern in my early twenties, uh, my nickname was word boy. Oh, it kind of stuck with me. That should have been disclosed in the brochure. It was not. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Jake, you hit on a couple points that I really want to talk about. Pattern matching. That's a really clever way of, or actually a very articulate way of describing what a marketer has to do. They have to find patterns and then match the solution. Most companies struggle with this into perpetuity. They never quite figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's where the religious discussions are in an organization. Are we a software company? Are we a services company? Are, you know, what's our value proposition? I'm not sure who to tie that to. Yeah. When you're recognizing patterns, are you recognizing patterns in consumer behavior or market trends? And then how are you matching that back to a what I'll call a product offering? Tell us more about what that looks like. It's a it's a great question. It's kind of all of the above. Okay. And there is a synthesis that needs to happen, which is about um, sort of taking in all the different data points and anecdote that you that you can capture both internally and externally. And in sort of sifting through of it to make sense of it, some of that is quantitative and structured, and some mm -hmm. of it is qualitative and more intuitive, more instinctual. Right. And it gets easier over time because you have more patterns to draw on. You have more experience to look back on. And things occur to you. It's like work has become, I'm not saying there aren't challenges to what I do. There's plenty of them. But it's kind of a pleasure. Sure. You know, because it's become like muscle memory. There are things that I've, I see over and over again. It's like, I've seen this movie before. And you can apply that to how you make sense of that information to, to make the connections. Now, instinct alone isn't enough. You also have to test these hypotheses. So applying some structure and rigor to how you take this init initial instinct or this pattern that you think you see improve that hypothesis with real data mm -hmm. before you attempt to really scale it. Um, and that's, you know, to your point, your question about where do startups go wrong? I think that's one place where they go wrong is they lean into instinct. They try to scale things that they haven't proven. Um, if you haven't proven something, you really have no business um, leaning into it with that level of investment. So true. I've battled that you know, on my, uh, at my own fault for years, as well as, as some of the organizations I'm in. Well, I think, or based on what I'm seeing or my experience, but there's no data to support this theory. We're just going to go with the gut. And by the way, in some situations, when you're a, an entrepreneur, you've got to make some decisions without the best data. Totally. And, and that's okay. But the more data you gather over time, then you need to make more refined and more informed decisions along the way. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the, I think of it as the fuzzy front end, you mm -hmm. know, in new product development, there's this concept of funny, fuzzy front end, which is kind of like design thinking. It's divergence before convergence. It's unconstrained thinking, all ideas on the table. That's the sort of wild west of ideation. And there, you shouldn't be applying too much structure, rigor, or data to that process. But once things start getting refined and you're at the point where you really need to, you need to test product market fit and, and solution problem match, that's when you have to start really thinking about things in a more structured and rigorous way because you're getting closer to the point where you're going to have to deploy capital and resource against that thing. And it better be right. It's higher stakes. Certainly. And I think when you're comparing the difference between launching a completely new product, a market creator, so to speak, versus refining existing products or services with new features and enhancements, hopefully based on some consumer behavior or customer behavior. When you look at organizations like Apple, and I'm putting, I want to put your, your thinking cap on for a minute. It might, it might burn my bald head, but I'm going to put Jake's thinking cap on, you know, 
Steve Jobs is famous for his comment, the, the customer doesn't know what they want. I know what they want. Yeah. He's been right a lot. Uh-huh. Right. He's been wrong a few times. Yeah. But you you mentioned earlier this grit, this ability to kind of see through when people are saying no at you and weather it and, and still make it. He's a perfect example of getting it wrong a few times. Sure. And then, boy, that batting average doesn't need to be big when you hit a big one. Yeah. And he's hit some big ones. There are subtle features inside of an iPhone. Let's use that as an example. It's a phone. Mm-hmm. I was the sole Droid user in my family for years until my kids went to college and we wanted to FaceTime with them. Mm-hmm. I switched phones simply because of FaceTime. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking of a product that you're launching, how do you zero in on that type of a killer app or what I'll call customer switching feature? Mm-hmm. Is there is there a way that you're thinking of the design of that or market testing that you found to be successful? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the, the way I think about it, first of all, the, the Jobsian theory of my customers don't know what they want. There's truth to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is typically how you um, sort of get at more transformational, disruptive innovations, because customers don't see three horizons ahead. Sure. But it's not how you get to more continuous innovation. Mm-hmm. So you kind of need a blend of both. I'll also say that, you know, genius doesn't scale. It's not like you can go out and hire a bunch of Steve Jobses. Right. When you run into them, I mean, that's magic. And, and it's great to have people like that in your organization. But that's not how you, it's not a planning assumption. Right. Is to go find Steve Jobs. Right. Yeah. The, the unicorns are just that. That's right. They're, they're once in a lifetime, once in a generation minds. That's right. And they have a purpose. 100%. Mm-hmm. So how do you get Pete to move from Android to iPhone? Um, I mean, the VCs will say that in order to disrupt an entrenched incumbent, your solution needs to be 10x better. That's what they're saying today. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if 10x is the right multiple, but it's, you know, makes sense. Yeah. It needs to be that much better because, uh, you know, it's it's really hard to compete with as is. And the funny thing about 10x better, unless it's been in the market and proven to be 10x better, you're you're taking a pretty big chance. That's right. And for those that have not raised money from the very beginning, right? Your first, hey, mom and dad, I need some money to my next step, which is friends and maybe an angel investor to a traditional or you know more institutional venture capital firm or private equity firm, mm-hmm. the, the hurdles are getting taller. It used to be, yeah, I'll take a chance on you because I like you, Pete. Yep. And now it's, I'll take a chance on you when you have your first customer. That's right. Now I've gotten back. I've got my first customer. They paid me and they're saying, yeah, well, I don't believe it can scale. Get me 10 more. Yep. So that validation, that risk profile, in fact, it's hurt the entrepreneurial community because there's less money at the beginning part of the pool. And the, but the barriers to entry have, have really been reduced. Yeah. Cloud computing. Sure. You don't have to build the entire stack. The infrastructure is all available. Um, open source, all these enablers, the gig economy, all these enablers of, of driving early stage innovation has um, made it easier in some respects for entrepreneurs to go out and prove something. Um, and that de-risks things for, for investors. They can command a higher bar in terms of what they want to see as proof of progress in order to write a check. Um, still doesn't mean it's easy. It, it doesn't. In, in fact, if the if the barrier drops, the level of competition goes up because that's, it. Th- th- that's, that's the hundred percent right. That's the drawback. You know, I, I remember in you know the first startup I did myself when we could put things into the cloud on Amazon. We we literally sat down and said, "Do you know how much money this is saving us?" You know, and and the risk of hosting this platform and it it became so much easier. We actually moved our development environment and our staging environments into Amazon because it just the redundancy and the scale became that much better to your point yeah. it just it it probably reduced our development costs by 50 to 60 percent oh, of what believe. they would have been five years before that yeah 100 percent. you know 
let's talk a bit about as a, as a marketer, the relationship between sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something I, I struggle with in, in, in previous roles as well as my existing role. And I have a good relationship with all of our sales and marketing people. It's not a people issue. But let's talk about your philosophy on where marketing kind of begins and ends and where sales picks up and then takes the ball. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about the difference between an MQL, a marketing qualified lead, and a sales qualified opportunity, right? This mm-hmm. is a real opportunity. How do you how do you look at that process and measure it in your organizations? Yeah, if I could count all the hours that I have spent negotiating the definition of an MQL and an mm-hmm. SQL, honestly, um, but it speaks to the challenge that you're pointing out, which is that the boundary between marketing and sales is, is some, sometimes a bit opaque and there's often lack of agreement around what represents um, that handoff, what represents passing quality to the sales team from a demand sure. perspective. Um, and I, it persists, like through my entire career, I haven't seen that gotten a lot better. Um, uh, there's, it's always some degree of dysfunction sure. um, that you kind of accept and it's built into the equation. I'd say that what companies have started to do much more effectively, and I certainly saw this at Pendo, is apply more rigor and resource to sales operations and revenue operations mm-hmm. as a way to bridge that gap and data science as a way to bridge that gap. So bringing um, strong analytics capabilities and, and strong process expertise to the, the, you know, accidents happen at the intersections. So not only within the functions, but the intersections between the functions and, and just staffing it appropriately. Because frankly, as a, as a marketing leader, and this is kind of my inclination as a human, but I think it's also the case for a lot of marketing people is I'm just juggling a lot. Like, yeah. And it's, and, you know, sure. I have adult onset ADD, like the rest of the population going deep, deep, deep into a, a, a process area is not something where I'm going to occupy my time. It's much right. more a specialized capability that needs to leave within one of these, live in one of these supporting functions like sales ops or rev ops. It's made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll mention is that, and this is a bit of a, a late learning for me because I grew up in the world of, of B2B uh, is how much brand matters. Mm. You know, uh, there, there's a time when I think brand in B2B was sort of dismissed as wasteful, irresponsible. Sure. It's all about demand. And uh, what I think we're finding is that it matters a ton. It really does. Um, and a, a former colleague of mine used to say that demand marketing without brand marketing is like strip mining. Yeah. You're depleting the underlying resource. It, it really is. And I th- we think about, we have this conversation quite a bit about brand, but I think the world is so different now with how rapidly B2B clients receive and process information about not only the solutions they're looking for, but much deeper understanding of the variables and the parameters and the value-added processes inside those solutions. So in other words, if I'm looking for a MarTech product, Mm-hmm. Spot, Marketa, whatever it might be. In about three minutes, I can find a website that breaks down in detail the comparison between those two platforms. Yeah. So the sure. next time I have a conversation with one of those vendors, I know everything I need to know. 100%. And at the end of the day, they're pretty similar. So how do I differentiate that in the B2B world? Mm-hmm. You're starting to hint at some of it. So this is why I'm, I'm trying to get some of our folks to understand inside of our own organization. It's a different climate out there. This isn't about you know, grinding out a bunch of emails, getting some clicks some responses and calling it a win. It's really more about providing valuable content in an environment where your customers are listening for that content and then building a brand, really yeah. building a That's brand right. and a reputation. So then when you make the ask, they go, oh, Jake from MetaCX, I know who those guys are. Jake's always got some really intelligent content out there. I trust Jake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. The other part that I think is starting to get a lot of attention is the gap between uh, sales and customer success Mm. and really nailing the handoff post-sales and importantly, ensuring there's alignment around 
what is promised to the prospect and what is delivered and proven sure. on the back end. And this is a big part of what MetaCX does for a living. Not to, not to make this about me, but it's very, very relevant to this challenge is this idea that, you know, product marketing, value engineering team, they're producing, they're producing a bunch of value propositions and, and, and promises that the sales team are enabled on. The sales team go out and position those with prospects and get them all lathered up and excited. Mm -hmm. That turns into a commercial relationship. And then they fumble the handoff and the customer's disappointed and frustrated. And then when it's time for renewal, everyone's forgotten. Like, where's, where are these outcomes you promised? Not only are they not well-documented and communicated post-sales, but there's no basis for measuring whether that value was realized. Oh, yeah. So you've created this, this very broken chain, this, this experience that is just almost systematically engineered to disappoint your customer when what you really care about as a recurring revenue business is renewing that relationship and expanding it over time. How does MetaCX solve that problem? So we treat um, sort of customer success as an outcome that that is a shared responsibility of a company, okay. not just a team that sits at the end of the life cycle after the deal is closed. Right. And the way we think about it is we, we provide a platform that enables sellers to uh, align with their prospects around a shared definition of value. And these are the outcomes, the positive business outcomes, the capabilities, the value statements, that the product marketing team and the value engineering team need to create and enable the sales team on. Now they're, they have a standardized set of, of value statements that they can present to their customer to create agreement around sort of this, this definition of value. These are the things we're going to do for you if you become a customer. So it changes the conversation from features, feeds mm -hmm. and speeds, to one of business outcomes. And it creates a level of trust and transparency in the relationship to say, these are the things that we agree on as the basis for this commercial relationship moving forward. Once the deal is closed, we help them nail the handoff. So make that a moment of delight, not disappointment. Mm -hmm. Create sort of an elevated moment in the experience, actually celebrate that as a key moment in the same way that Carta tells you vested some options and Gusto tells you got paid, make it visible, make it memorable, and importantly, make it an uninterrupted steel thread for the customer. The outcomes that you agreed on within the sales cycle are now the outcomes that the delivery team organizes around and works in service of, and then going, you know, moving into QBRs and renewal events, those outcomes can be illuminated with real data to say, are we or aren't we achieving the things that we promised? Well, this podcast is over. If I could, <laughs> if I could get any of my people to de deliver their value proposition statement the way you just did, I would. I would need a job. Was, I thought it was a little verbose, but oh, it was. But but <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat, literally. Maybe because this is important to me. But I was literally thinking to myself, "Holy cow!" So I, I want to go one level deeper there. So, you know, I know you certainly understand. There's a difference between the concept of that methodology and that strategy and the implementation. That's right. So, and that has to, that has to, it starts all the way back at the product and the customer support team internally. Mm -hmm. And that's getting us all in the same song sheet. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about how you're engaging the customer to buy into this concept, because that is a different way of selling. It is. And, and B2B is all about relationships. Yeah. You talked about brand earlier. What I need to know before I have this conversation with Jake and anybody at, at MetaCX is I want to have seen your brand and your value proposition out in the marketplace. So I become accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm now, I'm curious, mm -hmm. just like I asked that question. So do you use any visual tools or aids in that, in a sense, it's almost a survey with a customer. What, what are you trying to accomplish? How do we align in those goals and those metrics and those success mm -hmm. criteria? How do we establish them up front? Mm -hmm. How are they clearly measured? What tool are we using to measure them? And then how do we monitor and then periodically report back to make sure we're staying in sync? What is that? Are there tools you're using or is it all process? Uh, it's the, it's our platform itself. And, okay. and we're hitting on a really important point. We are, are asking the buyer to work a little differently. 
-hmm. which isn't always the easiest thing to do. Right. What we find is that if you create a better experience for the buyer, and certainly you have to spoon feed it a bit. So often the first introduction to MetaCX um, for a prospect would be with the seller themselves, like share it in a Zoom and show them what this experience looks like Okay. before they get some invitation out of the blue that asks them to step into this digital experience. And um, the way that the outcomes are shaped is what I would describe as co-creation. So we standardize a set of objects that are sort of the recommended outcomes that are aligned to capabilities and aligned to market segments. These are the things that we can do repeatedly. Um, but the way that they're presented to the customer isn't like a data sheet or a marketing slick. It is an interactive process, process of asking discovery questions in order to shape a, a vision for value that the customer feels that they have some ownership in. So it really is kind of an interactive co-creation process. When you talk about an object in a, in a, in a, in a sense of a business object, perhaps versus a class object, formation and object-oriented software. Yeah, I love the concept that you said, these are predetermined, they're, they're designed with some thought around, this is an industry. Yep. Here are the things we know that are of value to them. So when you start the conversation, you're 80% there. That's right. When you, when you present that object, is there a visual that registers with these customers where they go, oh, I, I would enjoy participating in that? How does that yeah. look? <clears throat> yeah, that's also a very important point. We designed the experience to be visually arresting. Cool. So it is not like we're inviting you into our Salesforce instance. No offense to Salesforce, but you not probably the best UI. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. We've designed it intentionally <clears throat> to be visually striking. Like this is, wow, that's different presentation level quality in terms of like the, the, the user experience and the graphical treatment and how we think about that experience. Um, so companies are proud to be associated with it and make it an extension of their brand. And, and likewise, customers and prospects are intrigued by it. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, net cert of where I'm at today and and we have this discussion, by the way, our enterprise program team or our, our client success team, their biggest frustration would be the handoff from sales to them. And mm -hmm. their biggest issue, yeah, I can pin it down to one specific thing, is managing expectations. That's it. That, that I mean, it. mechanically, they can handle all of it, the implementation. It. But when, the, when, they, when they, their first conversation with a customer and they say, sales told you what? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and then you're right, that, that moment of disappointment. Yep. And by the way, I'm screwed because no one's happy. My sales team's not happy. My, my EPM team's not happy. And the client's not happy. It so puts customer success in an impossible position. It, does. it, it really, really does. does. And we, what I have found through some scars and through some experience, when I've pulled my enterprise or my success team in early on a deal, and sometimes we're afraid because they're busy, mm -hmm. they want to be involved, by the way. Right. When I've pulled them in and made them part of the discussions with the customer, Two things have happened. Well, three. We've won the deal. Yep. We've won the deal because those people bring instant credibility to the solution because they the customer understands they are going to tell them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. You bet. The credibility is instant. The other thing that I think sales teams forget is now they're bought in. They want to win this deal. So they welcome it with open arms because totally. they've been part of the process. I love that. I, and we see the same thing. Couldn't agree more. One of the subtle nuances of MetaCX and how we do this is everything's oriented around a life cycle. And that life cycle is very visual. Mm -hmm. And it's a visual that both the supplier and the buyer can see and sort of experience together. Sure. And you can see where you are and you can see what's ahead. And the what's ahead gives you a bit of a preview into the, the, the journey you're on together. And that journey has its own narrative and it yeah. has its own characters. Yeah. Like there's the CSM and you can, they have a, a name, a face, a profile, a back, a backstory. Sure. And that just, just that alone creates confidence. Oh, it, it does. And it, it creates connections as well. It does. When I'm thinking about, and I'm, I'm envisioning the platform itself and we'll just call it, you know, this great customer transition platform and we'll let you, we'll put it in the show notes and describe exactly what it is. How important it, are the connections between your client's CRM 
and eventually the customer's platforms? Are we pulling data in from different places so that yes. it's seamless? Because now, you, in a sense, you're probably repla replacing a reporting dashboard. Uh, to a degree. So yes, 100%. I mean, because we are covering the full life cycle, mm -hmm. extensibility, the ability to integrate with existing tools, very, very important for us. Okay. We, we're not trying to replace CRM. CRM right. is your system of record. Continue mm -hmm. to use that. We're layering on top of that a shared experience with your customers that creates differentiation and helps you reveal value as it's, as it's realized across that relationship. Well, clearly, if you've established what the outcomes and the metrics are, that data comes from somewhere. Yeah. Right. So that's where you point to and say, this is what I'm going to show you. This is where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And when it leads into the QBR, you mentioned QBR earlier. This is, it's a lost art, I think, in a lot of companies is the actual QBR itself. And, and some customers don't like to call it a QBR. We call it a partnership meeting, partnership mm -hmm. strategy meeting. Mm -hmm. What are the things that you've discovered discovered organizations can bring a value to a meeting like that? When, when I've been part of QBRs, I've 80 plus percent of the time been pretty frustrated and disappointed mm -hmm. um, because it's more about them than me. Certainly. It, it's all about sort of um, allaying their fears that you might churn, being able mm -hmm. to look into your eyes and saying, hey, are you with me? Right. Um, and it's not adding any value to my world because they're forced, because of the things we're talking about here, they're forced to retroactively scramble to create, recreate a picture of value. And it's impressionistic at best. Like it's really hard to see value realization in the stories they tell. What you can see is desperation. What you can see is fear um, yep. and relationships can paper over some of those, those gaps. Um, like you want to do right by people that you like, and most yeah. CSMs are pretty likable. Yeah. Um, but that's not sustainable. That only goes so far. Well, it's back to your comment that the strategy you're recommending involves product, leadership, sales, account support, account management. So the QBR is really an opportunity for the whole company to shine and learn. Totally. Right. You're sitting in front of the customer. The customer, first of all, should be dictating this agenda. Yep. What would you like to accomplish? What are the areas we can work on? I always ask the question, what's changed in your business climate that we can help with? Yep. And that, that's an interesting question. Um, and I think, by the way, some customers are going to be polite and say that agenda looks great. No, drill down. No, really. What do you, if you're going to spend time with us, what can we do to make this worth your while? Because mm -hmm. if we've done our job effectively, we don't need to regurgitate the metrics and the success numbers. They've already seen that. Right. That's right. You mentioned journey. What's the next chapter in the story is what they want to know. That's right. And they're not looking for perfection. They're not looking for you to say, with absolute certainty, we delivered exactly what we promised. <clears throat> they're looking for directional alignment to the thing that was discussed. They're looking for rigor. Mm -hmm. like you have a systematic way to help us achieve those things. And they're looking for consistency. When you guys are at, at MetaRx, when you're or CX, when you're selling your platform, what is the point of pain that you're trying to solve if I'm, a, if I'm a potential B2B customer? Is it churn? Is that what you're going after? It's, it's really five things. It starts okay. with win rate. So okay. to the extent that you can present sort of this picture of value, you can mm -hmm. create trust and transparency in the relationship um, and differentiate your capabilities in that sort of narrative, it increases win rate. We see it impacting positively impacting ACV. Okay. It's because you're attaching to value. You're telling a more differentiated story. Sure. Um, it impacts retention rates, certainly, because mm -hmm. proof of performance, the ability to illuminate that you've achieved what you said you're going to achieve. Um, expansion. So if you know, as a I always use the example of myself as a marketer, mm -hmm. and Google and Facebook and the other ad tech platforms have made massive businesses on the back of this is if you can show me with certainty that what I'm investing in is working, mm -hmm. I will cheerfully write a check. I will yes. double down on that. I will feed those flames. And that's what happens when you start putting data to outcome achievement is it helps you unlock the, the expansion motion, sure. which is so difficult for, for so many companies. Yeah. And I think I mentioned uh, four. I know there's a fifth, but let's leave it there. Yeah, we'll go check the website for the fifth. Okay. You know, we've 
we've revamped the way we're talking to customers and we've changed the discussion from, you know, speeds and feeds and all the bells and whistles of our technology platform into the fact that our platform allows you to make business decisions no one else will allow you to make. And then we show them the data inside their own networks. Fortunately, we have customers where we've got the data that validates the, the discussion, right? Here is a, a large franchise organization. You're viewing it as a corporate franchisor, but you've got all these hundreds of franchisees. We're showing you data you've never seen inside your own organization hmm. and how pulling this lever in your outbound marketing efforts, to your point, if you give me a quarter and I give you $10 back, you're going to give me a lot of quarters. Yeah, you bet. And, and that, that changes the discussion because now we're not talking about nits, you know, and, exactly. and dis, it, you're, 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 you're becoming a strategic business partner. They can't live without you at that point. That's exactly right. I would tell you that while our technology was an in, integral part, our account management and EPM team, particularly a couple individuals, built those reports mm -hmm. to drive those discussions and have really changed the game in those customers. Those customers have grown 200% in 12 months. Amazing. The, the expanding side, right? We've won them a year ago. Now they have the potential to be our largest customer because we've continued to drive value. That's amazing. So uh, by the way, the first half of the podcast, stellar, right? I mean, there's there's value here for any marketer. I want to tap a bit into the the curious side of your nature, right? So there's at least, you know, a half a dozen degrees on the wall behind you. It's a little embarrassing. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it's embarrassing. I'd be, I'd be horrified to have those on my wall. <laughs> so Jake, what is it about the concept of learning something new? And you mentioned before, I'm no genius, by the way, that might be the title of the podcast. I'm always looking for a title. That's a great title. The fact that you don't believe intellectually that you have an advantage there, what makes it, what makes you an adept learner? It's a good question. Um, by the way, those are not all degrees. There's a few things that aren't. Um, and uh, the, the running joke is that maybe I work in a dentist office, by the way. Well, I thought one of them might be your kickball championship from yeah, the right. Intramural exactly. League or something. Probably yeah, that's very proud of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very proud of that. What makes me an adept learner? I, I think, honestly, it does start with curiosity, Pete. Um, and But also a discipline. Mm. Like I'm a discipline um, junkie. Okay. I'm a student of discipline. Like I really care about consistency. I care about ritual. I care about habit. So when you describe, when you line those back or tie those back to learning, yeah. is it the discipline of I'm going to, all right, I'm going to take this course or I'm going to take this, this curriculum. I'm going to apply myself 90 minutes every evening to learn my craft. And I'm going to do the rituals of all the homework. And what, how do you apply that? What does that look like? That. So I won't rest until I do. Ah. And, and I also apply that in my professional career. Mm -hmm. I always have. It's it's a level of, I guess, relentlessness. <laughs> um, I'm just going to do what I say I'm going to do. Um, that's the new title. I won't rest till I do. That's even better. <laughs> so it's funny. I, I, I was actually a guest in a podcast uh, a few weeks ago in the topic of fitness and which is kind of my passion came up and I have the same mentality. If I'm getting on the bike or I'm going out to the gym and I say, I'm going to do 10 sets, 10 reps at this weight. You're going to do exactly that. I am going to, I'm going to do it. Even if I have to drop it and pick it back up and do it, uh -huh. I will not mentally stop till I've accomplished that goal. Yeah. And I see, I, I feel differently on the fitness side, but that is definitely the principle I apply. Well, everybody's got to play to their strengths. And I think right. so many people when they approach the learning process, don't take that discipline. Yeah. And the sense of accomplishment when you get, when you break through that barrier and you've read the last chapter or have learned the last book or taken the last test. It feels great. It does feel great. When you, are you a more visual learner? I mean, are, are you watching a video versus reading something? What would, what would well, be the best way? Reading? Uh, yeah. More auditory. Yeah. Uh, podcasts, audio, audible books. You, are you able to retain them when you hear them? Yeah. Yeah. But I prefer an actual book yeah. I prefer reading. Yeah. Do you take notes while you're reading or you digest it and go back and review? A little bit of both. Yeah. I don't take extensive notes, but I highlight things. Now, when you think about carrying knowledge that you're capturing on the outside back into your teams, how do you present that information to them? I've, and the reason I asked the question, I've been in an organization where we, we used to joke, it was the book of the month mm -hmm. and the CEO came in and read this book and the whole company would pivot based on the strategy of that book, like literally do 
there'd be three days of leadership offsites. We'd all read the book and it got to the point where we kind of stopped reading the book. Cause I would, I would literally, my first couple of times I took it serious. I got notes and I was ready to go. And I realized six weeks later, we were, we were doing a different book. So how do you, how do you pull that out outside knowledge into your team in a digestible way? Well, first of all, I'll say I rarely read business books. I used ah. to, and occasionally I still do, but not very often. Um, I found them to be mostly repetitive, reductive. Yeah. Uh, it should have been an article. And I don't have a ton of patience for that. It's someone should. that's trying to build their personal brand and, and, um, and, 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 and create a revenue stream. And they had to get a book published. Yep. I just don't have time for it and or patience. There's so much great content out there. It's like the golden age of content. Why would I spend my time on that? Occasionally you run into a great business book. I mean, there's been plenty of my experience that have been formative, Crossing the Chasm, Innovator's Dilemma, uh, Made to Stick, um, Start with Why. Like there's a handful. Crossing the Chasm was a game changer for me. I still use it. Yeah. I still love that book. Jeffrey Moore was on one of my advisory boards in one of my first startups. He's amazing. Yeah, amazing guy. And, you know, I, I'll use for business books, I use Blinkist. Mm -hmm. If I'm in the car, I can get a book, you know, nine blinks, anything relevant. And if it's something that hits me, I'll go read the actual book. Yeah. What would be the genre that you would prefer to dive into if it's not a business book? So narrative nonfiction is really what I, I read the most. Okay. So it's um, nonfiction where the principles of a fiction have been applied. So a deep character. Um, a lot of scene setting, artistic technique. Uh, really care about narrative. Really care about language. I'm yeah. a writer, oh, so very good. A lot, a lot of it is just kind of um, it's aesthetic for me. I love the art of language, and sure. I read a ton for that. But the byproduct of that is is knowledge and and insight and new experience. So you ask, how do I apply the things I learn to what I do for a living in my team? Mm -hmm. It's um, not nearly as brute force or obvious as what you described because it's never that direct. It's never a direct line to the insight. Sure. It's something I read or something I learn that triggers a new way of thinking that inspires a new thought process that then becomes the thing I'm obsessed about. It's not some guy's framework or some woman's framework. It's this nugget <laughs> that for whatever reason, Resonated. Yeah. Yeah. What are the uh, what are your top three books right now? Oh man, that is like the hardest question ever. Um, what are my top three books right now? Yeah, I can't even answer it. You know what? I'll ping you after and I'll put them in the footnotes. Okay, it's a great question. I'll do that. Is there a uh, uh, a particular story arc that intrigues you when you're reading a book? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm a huge fan of the, what I would describe as the braided narrative. Okay. And it's multiple stories that are happening in parallel that mm -hmm. interweave. Um, the guy that's an absolute genius at that is, his name is, uh, Eric Larson. He wrote <laughs> Devil in the White City. And, uh, the <laughs> Splendid in the Vile. Yeah. So good. One of my it's favorite cool. books. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. He's a, he's a stretch guest for me in the podcast, by the way. You should, you should definitely have them on your podcast. I will. That's, so, it is so funny that I was going to say, my next question was, who's your favorite? And you were, and I was going to bring up Eric Larson and you were already there. That's great. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Yeah. He's a tremendous author. I, I, the Spun in the Vile to me, the look into Winston Churchill's first year in office is fascinating. Amazing. Yeah. They don't, they don't make people that way anymore. And people certainly don't speak agree. and write that way anymore. I would absolutely agree. And it's sad. Yeah. It, the the use of the English language. So one of my earlier guests, Holly Hammer, is an attorney, but also has a degree in literature. So her, I said, why did you go into law? She goes, I appreciate the written word so much mm -hmm. and the eloquence of and the power of the written word. Mm -hmm. So, and and I think the way you described a, a kind of a, a braided, you know, a braided path, a braided story path is just very interesting, trying to keep all those different things intertwined and relatable. It's really hard to do too. It is. I have to appreciate the craft of that. Yeah, you, you really do. And, and uh, some of the earlier founding fathers writings to me, Jefferson, you know, those people, the way they wrote was just unbelievable. Yeah. 
and, and these are 29, 30 year old men, you know, and I'm trying to get through a copy of sports illustrated. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. They're, they're have more weighty things in their mind. Yeah. So, you know, Jake, when you think about uh, your, your educational background, your work experiences and the different entrepreneurs you've worked with, if you're sitting down for, with a first time entrepreneur that mm -hmm. says, Hey, Jake, I need you to come do this with me. Based on your experience, what would be the three things you would tell them not to do? Oh boy. Um, scale too soon. Okay. Um, there's a long pause there for you, Pete. I'm okay. This is a, is a, I did not prep Jake for this question. Yeah. So scale too soon for sure. Um, you know, uh, innovate in a vacuum, ah. right? So co-create with your customers, obsess and fall in love with the problem, not the product. Ah. Now, I found that the best product led founders, product managers in general, or product mm -hmm. leaders are just incredibly empathetic humans who really care a lot about the problem they're trying to solve and who they're trying to serve. And they have a um, healthy distance from the thing they're building. They are not trying to promote their solution. They're trying to find the right solution. That's it. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll let you off on number three because I want, I want to hang on number two for a minute. So, Good. I didn't have a third. And it's, see, we're here to help each other. <laughs> so I know uh, Todd just released a book, Todd Olson from yep. Pendo, uh, yep. The Product-Led Organization. Yes. It's a really interesting concept mm -hmm. because it sounds, sounds like it's against the actual grain of where you'd be a customer-led organization. Mm -hmm. I think you just tied it off for us, right? If, if you're product-led, and by the way, it could be a service or an actual widget. Mm -hmm. There is someone or a team in your organization out there with the customer That's it. embracing the problem. That's right. There's okay. a lot there. When I first saw Todd's post, I thought, geez. You sure? Not... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is he saying? Yeah. And I knew you'd have an opinion on it. And I think it's brilliant. And by the way, Todd is one of those rare people you mentioned, right? When you sit with Todd and you have a conversation with him, He's having three other conversations in his brain at the same time. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, he literally is like, yeah, he's with you. Okay. It's like, you're not, but you yeah. know, you know, there's something else going on in there. Yeah. Yeah. Todd's a nice guy. Oh, he's a super guy. It just, and it's he's a, a very smart guy. And he is truly an entrepreneur. Yes. You know, he's a relentless human. He is. And you have to have that. So I've, it's interesting. I've recognized the same traits. Truly successful entrepreneurs have a drive. And a grit. Yep. Uh, if that's the goal, um, there's dead bodies all over the side of the road. They're going to get there. And if that's what it is, I'm not that. Yeah. Right. And I'm yeah. okay with that. Like what I do, I think is valuable too. Oh, I, by the way, but, you can't, you can't have one without the other. That's right. You, you really can't. And I think that's the, that's the big challenge. I can tell organizations where I didn't have that person. Yeah. And that person's important for a couple of reasons. You need someone with a very logical thought process at the table mm -hmm. because entrepreneurs are driven with passion, emotion, whatever it might be. But sometimes there's some blind spots mm -hmm. for sure. And making sure that someone's asking the right questions and pulling them back every once in a while, it's really important. And then eventually when you talked about scale, that division of labor is really important. Yeah. You can't do it all. That's so true. You, you just can't. When you think about the businesses that you've been in, associated with in the past, what are the attributes, and it could be product, it could be market, it could be the solution that you found really made those businesses successful? Maybe if you have an example or two, it'd be great. Yeah, 100%. Well, I think Pendo is a good example. Mm -hmm. Great market timing. I think some of that market timing was probably a little bit of luck, but really tapped into an unmet need at yeah. the right moment in time. And then just acute focus um, in terms of how, how that company was built um, in executing really around the need of the customer, mm -hmm. um, 
and, and then building a culture that really reinforced a set of values that were very consistent in how the company hires people and how, it, how they promote people and how they make decisions. Um, it's really, it's fairly palp palpable. It was an important uh, experience for me being part of that. It's interesting because Pendo helps marketers, product marketers do their job, right? Yeah. Marketing to me in every organization I've been in, whether I was a GE or a nimble startup or a mid-size organization, marketing is the hardest job to fill. Mm -hmm. it, 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 I've always found it extremely difficult to find solid marketing people because it's hard to measure. It is. And Salespeople can put up their numbers. If you can write code, you can write code. There's good coders and bad coders, but marketing, you're, you're almost taking a, a, a leap every time you bring somebody on board. Yeah. Because yeah. they have to walk that dance between the customer, the sales team, and the product team to get it right. It's not an easy role. It's a lot of fun, though. It, it, by the way, I, wouldn't, I don't do well in a box. Yeah. I prefer to be in that ambiguous world between those different worlds. And, and that's the art. That is truly the art. If you can get everybody in a room to go, that's it. That's right. That's, the, if, that's success. To that's your point, right. what you guys are doing and why I want to bring this home that's that's euphoria. That's euphoria for you guys, right? And MetaCX, if you go, I got customer support, I've got product, I've got the customer, and I've got sales, and we all just went, we're on it. That's yep. it. That's the end game. That's the magic. Well, Jake, it's been a pleasure. An hour went by uh, far too fast for me. And Likewise, Pete. We could probably go another two hours, and, I, and I'm going to have a follow up because I think there's probably another three or four layers to the depth of your curiosity that I want to drill into. Happy to do it again. This is um, fantastic. So I will uh, let everybody know that your information's are, it is in the show notes. So if they want to reach out and contact you and, and MetaCX and find out what you guys can do to help them manage expectations. And I love the concept of helping this be part of the winning process because I, I think it is a value proposition in the sale. It's, it's great. Definitely. Thank you. Well, Jake, thanks again for the time. Hope your cold is better and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Pete. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.